0: A quote in the Lawrence Journal World, a daily paper in Kansas, sums it up. If he's going to have all those woolly heads around him, he might as well forget about the support of our kind of people. The year was 1972. The author was anonymous, a source in the infamous Chicago Democratic Party machine. The woolly heads were the supporters of the anti-war presidential candidate, George McGovern. Among them, a young Hillary Rodham. This week, Bernie Sanders tweeted, I've got news for the Democratic establishment. They can't stop us. Is it 1972 all over again? With 248 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. Hello, I'm John Priddeau, and this is a podcast from The Economist about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. I'm The Economist's US editor, and from now until Election Day, we'll take one theme each week and explore it in depth. Today, is the party machine dying? The centrists in the Democratic Party establishment have just a few days to figure out how to stop Bernie Sanders from running away with the nomination on Super Tuesday. Something similar happened to the Republicans in 2016, when Donald Trump memed his way to the presidency to the horror of party grandees. Is the era of party control of the nomination process over, or are moderates simply losing a more old-fashioned battle of ideas? Here to chew over all of this, as ever, our New York bureau chief, Charlotte Howard, and our Washington correspondent, John Fassman. Charlotte, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. It was nice to hang out with you in New York. I'm missing you in London. John Fassman, how are you? I know you've been on the trail for about a month now, but you've managed to spend about a day at home, which must feel like a liberation. It
1: felt great. I was in our nation's capital this week. It was just as I left
0: it. It was good. Well, before we get into a discussion of the power of the party establishment, let's spend a bit of time talking about how a political machine is meant to actually work. John Fassman, you've been having some interesting conversations in Nevada when you were there for the Democratic caucus. What did you pick up? Oh, uh, well, it was really interesting.
1: I know Nevada is in the rear view, but I think there are a couple of lessons we can still glean from it. The first thing is, if you remember, the state's biggest and most powerful union, the Culinary Workers Local 226, came out against Medicare for All. And that's because the union has so many people, tens of thousands in a single city of Las Vegas, they use their numbers really effectively to give their members first-rate health care. And other unions have done the same thing. And are, a lot of unions also have great health care plans, and they're nervous about losing them. In the end, it didn't much matter. The Sanders campaign organized the Latino community really well, and they rode that to a victory. But it did highlight that on the signature issue of the most pro-union Democratic frontrunner in a generation, unions are to his right. Another reason I think Nevada is interesting is they have a really effective, well-organized state party. And a lot of that is due to Harry Reid, who is a senator for 30 years. He rose to become Senate Majority Leader for most of Barack Obama's presidency, and he is a formidable campaigner and organizer. He has been battling cancer for the past couple of years, but he's still as sharp as ever. I went to see him at the Bellagio, where he told me how he built Nevada's state Democratic Party into such a formidable machine. As I spoke to him, He occasionally, you will hear him occasionally banging the table, which had my recorder on it. I wonder if this is a holdover from his Senate career where he banged the podium. It turns out that building a machine is mostly about money.
2: When I got out of school, I started being involved with the state party as a precinct captain. And I always recognized, as I proceeded politically, how weak the party was. It was just weak. All they did is, at the convention's fight, there came a time, probably about 2004 that I was in a position to do something about it. And so I started diverting some of my money to the state party here in Nevada. Your campaign
1: money?
2: Yeah. Yeah. My goal was to have a year-round state party because what the party did at election time, they would get together and they would have a big fight of who's going to be the chair, county chair, state chair. I wanted a state party that functioned year-round. We started paying people for doing their jobs and it wasn't all volunteer. That's how the so-called machine got started, just focused a little money and attention.
0: John, hearing Harry Reid talk about his machine there, it almost sounds like a description of politics from another age. Is that machine that he built, is that example one that still can be replicated in other states? Is it still relevant or is it being kind of overtaken by social media memes and other things?
1: In Nevada, it still works. He's very good at recruiting, Nevada has a lot of people in one city, which makes it easy to organize. It has a very powerful union, which he can also use to organize. So it is true that it's sort of an older method of political organization. And I don't know how much of it is replicable in other states, but it still works really well there.
3: In Nevada, there has been a lot of discussion about expanding the electorate, and Sanders made a a big effort to reach out to... Hispanic voters, including with advertisements and Spanish media. But this began, of course, long before Bernie Sanders, and it was part of Harry Reid's legacy in Nevada, right?
1: Yeah, Harry Reid really organized non-traditional Latino voters very well by working closely with community leaders and charities.
3: We would
2: solicit donations and toys for kids for Christmas, and we would stand out there and pass out toys hour after hour after hour. And people frankly, used to make fun of me. Why are you wasting your damn time? A lot of them aren't citizens. Those that are citizens aren't registered. If they're registered, they don't vote. I went to all that May Day stuff and Cinco de Mayo. And what I told all the Hispanics whenever I would be at a group, the only way your strengths can be felt is at the ballot box. Unless you start voting, you're powerless. One of my re-elections, first ad they ran against me was Harry Reid, best friend illegal immigrants ever had. That was an ad. and It had all these dark people and a little scary. But what it did, it just pissed off the Hispanic community. They got so mad. So rather than hurting me, to help me. I would not have won that re-election but for the Hispanic vote.
0: John, one of the things about the Nevada caucus result which interested me and which you wrote about is the weakness of the union's party machine. There was a time in democratic politics when getting on the wrong side of the culinary union in Nevada would have been fatal. It didn't matter for Bernie Sanders. And that speaks to both the kind of declining force of unions in America, far fewer workers are unionized now than they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And also the fact that within the democratic party unions just don't have the clout they once did. You know, the unions once played this role, sort of anchoring Democrats more In the mainstream. Now they're less important in the party. It's easier for candidates to kind of float off to ideological extremes than it used to be.
1: Yeah, there was a joke in 2016 that the union leaders backed Hillary Clinton, the shop stewards and union presidents backed Sanders, and the rank and file voted for Trump. So I think that is a sign of union weakness and union fragmentation. They just don't play the same role they did before. Now, interestingly, in 2008, the Culinary Workers Union endorsed Barack Obama. But Hillary Clinton won the Nevada caucus, and one reason that happened is that Bill and Hillary spent days and days, I mean, 14 hours a day on casino floors, glad-handing individual workers. And that seems like what Sanders did, in essence, is that instead of courting the endorsement of the leadership, he really, really organized well among the
0: rank and file. So, John, if you look at Bernie Sands's success in Nevada, did he create a parallel machine? I mean, obviously, he couldn't borrow Harry Reid's machine because this is a caucus. Lots of other candidates would have wanted to borrow it if they could. Did he create his own parallel machine? And what does a brand new political machine built from scratch in a few months look like in 2020?
1: Well, a couple of things are interesting about that. First of all, I don't think it's right to say that it was built in a few months because he's been running for president for five years, basically. Also, some of the more prominent figures in his campaign are Harry Reid alums. So Faz Shakir, who is his campaign manager, worked for Harry Reid. So did Josh Orton, who is his national political director. So I think the organization he did really had a sort of Reid influence on it in the sense that they went into communities and talked to people where they were. That's really how you build an organization. Harry Reid made that organization sustainable in Nevada. But the root of any good political organization, whether for a movement or permanently, is talking to people where they are. And the Sanders campaign just did that really, really well.
3: I also think it's interesting to look at the way that Sanders spent in Nevada. So as you say, he's been running for president not just for a few months, but for several years. He has enormous name recognition. He also has the experience of his prior attempt running for president. So last time around, he didn't know how much money he would raise, particularly with his style of fundraising, which is to go after small donors. This time around, he knows he can raise a ton of money, and that means he can deploy more resources in states early, staff up, get out there to those communities, put boots on the ground, as well as place all these advertisements across Nevada's airwaves, including directly targeting Latino voters. So I think he didn't make use of the machine in the traditional sense, but it's not like he's a brand new candidate. He's bringing this experience and heft to the election this time around.
0: Yeah. And he has people on his staff who know how to do that. Bernie Sanders makes a big show of running against the Democratic establishment, doesn't he? And Harry Reid, as a former Senate majority leader, is about as establishment in some senses as it gets. But when Sanders says he's running against this establishment, is he running against people like Harry Reid? Or or what is the Democratic establishment in 2020 really anyway? It almost seems, when Bernie Sanders attacks it to me, like it's a bit of a kind of mirage.
3: What is the Democratic establishment? I have no idea. I mean, you have people who sort of used to be very much part of the Democratic establishment. So from Rahm Emanuel to uh, the Clintons, et cetera. But Rahm Emanuel, who, of course, got his career uh, started in the Clinton administration, then went on to be a congressman, then served in Barack Obama's White House before becoming Chicago mayor. You cannot imagine anyone sort of more part of the traditional machine than he is. And he has been out making this point that The Democratic electorate is not looking for revolution. There are lots of Democrats who won in 2018 who helped to turn the House blue, who won in moderate districts. These are not firebrand Sanders acolytes. But the thing is, does anyone really care what Rahm Emanuel is saying? You know, I mean, I really doubt that uh, the people who are coming to the polls for Bernie, A, have read Ron Emanuel's op-eds, or B, if they did, would care about it whatsoever. And so I think that there are people who are in the establishment who are kind of ringing the alarm bells. The question is whether that will make any difference.
1: Yeah, certainly Joe Biden is an establishment figure, but that doesn't seem to have
0: helped him that much. I mean, parties just aren't what they were. Okay, thanks, guys. We'll come back and talk about Joe Biden a little bit later and talk about that split between the establishment and insurgent candidates and also talk about the sense that parties not just in America, but across the Democratic West seem to be disintegrating. Meanwhile, a reminder that if you want to read John's reporting and the rest of our coverage of the US and the rest of the world, you can, by subscribing to The Economist, Head to economist.com slash pod2020 to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. Our lead story this week is on the coronavirus. Our science and tech podcast, Babbage, is also looking at how countries can prepare for the spread of the virus this week. That link to subscribe again, economist.com slash pod2020. Let's take a step back at this point to look at how the tussle between the establishment and populist candidates over the nomination process came to be. 1968, the summer after the summer of love, is the key year for understanding how the Democratic Party ended up with its primary system. I have great faith in American youth. The youth of today can change the world. Up to then, party leaders, rather than rank-and-file supporters, chose the presidential candidate. In two-thirds of states, party bigwigs and officials hand-picked delegates to the nominating convention. Mr. Chairman,
2: most delegates to this convention do not know that thousands of young people are being beaten in the streets of Chicago.
0: The 68 convention erupted in chaos. The primaries had produced no obvious winner. The eventual nominee, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, hadn't stood in a single primary.
2: I request the suspension of the rules for the purpose of adjournment for two weeks.
0: The system was hard to defend, particularly after Humphrey lost the general election to Richard Nixon. How can a party
2: that can't unite itself unite the nation? How can a party that can't keep order in its own backyard hope to keep order in our 50 states?
0: And so, the McGovern-Fraser Commission, headed by a Democratic senator for South Dakota and a Minnesota congressman, was born. The old system contradicted the anti-establishment spirit of the time, which the party was then absorbing. Worse, in some states, the old rules included things like literacy tests that were designed to exclude black voters from wielding influence in the primary. The cure for the ills of democracy, the report concluded, is more democracy.
2: Now, I think we need a president who isn't afraid to say, I'm gonna change my mind, I made a mistake.
0: For the 1972 election, open primaries were introduced. The party's presidential candidate would be directly elected by voters.
2: And sometimes you ought to be able to say to the people this is not gonna be popular, but this is what we're gonna to have to do to save our country.
0: The first victor under this new system? You have to make those hard decisions. George McGovern. McGovern, Democrat for the people. The same South Dakota senator who wrote the new rules.
2: Illinois. The great state of Illinois, 30 and one half votes for Senator Scoop Jackson.
3: 30 and a half. 30 and a half. And 119 votes for the next president. In Hollywood,
0: 1972 was huge. Godfather became the most profitable film ever made. But it was an infamous year for Democrats. McGovern made American voters an offer that was way too easy to refuse. He lost 49 states to Richard Nixon. McGovern summed up the experience like this. I opened up the doors of the Democratic Party and 20 million people walked out. The economist at the time called him a man of infinite goodwill and absolute minimum of guile. The scale of the loss scarred a generation of Democrats, including two young lawyers fresh out of Yale. I got into law school.
3: I thought I'm going to try to make a difference in people's lives.
0: Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham. And I saw Hillary sitting there. There's a famous photo of the couple at the time they were managing McGovern's campaign in Texas. Bill, long-haired, bearded, and in a suede jacket. Hillary in a pair of tinted glasses. We
1: know each other's names.
0: I'm Hillary Rodham. Who are you? It features in the new Hillary documentary.
1: I
2: said I really want to marry you, but you shouldn't
0: marry me. Establishment efforts to take back control of the primary process culminated in Hillary Clinton's nomination in the face of a strong challenge from Bernie Sanders last time.
2: If you are talking about the Wall Street bailout, where some of your friends destroyed this economy...
0: The dispute over what lessons to learn from her defeat continues as Super Tuesday looms next week.
2: If you're going to talk, tell the whole story, well, Senator Let me Hander. tell my story, you tell yours. I will. Your story is for voting for every disastrous treaty.
0: John Fasman is the Democratic Party establishment losing its mojo? Is it having another 1972 moment, do you think? I mean, it certainly looks like it, doesn't it? I have talked to no shortage of freshman
1: Democrats, of sort of establishment Democrats, of centrist Democrats who are really panicked and worried. And they're all about to do something. And when you ask, what is it you're going to do? There's no real firm answer. Bernie Sanders has just attracted more votes than any other candidate has so far. And unless that changes, he's going to be the nominee, whatever anybody thinks to it.
3: You saw the development after McGovern's loss of the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, which is since no more, but it had a pretty impressive run of it through the nineties, helping to move the Democratic Party to the center, particularly during the Clinton era. And there was this book that came out in two thousand eight called The Party Decide. And the thesis of that was essentially that party endorsements. The party's method of helping to uh, in- endorse specific candidates was the best predictor of delegate winning. That, of course, just is completely looks obsolete in this day and age. There's this feeling that the people who are, who sought incremental change, including Bill Clinton and including Barack Obama, sought the vote of people who had low incomes and African-Americans, but didn't really do enough to change. America to help them. They were too quick to compromise. They tried to seek deals with Republicans that didn't bear fruit and there's a t- disillusionment with that entire idea. And so I don't think it's surprising that the DLC is no more or that you see this surge of support for Sanders.
0: Charlotte, you heard in that clip of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton debating in the last cycle in 2016 him going after Hillary Clinton's ties to Wall Street and there is that Wall Street Democratic party nexus which i guess senator sanders has right in his crosshairs and that he considers to be the establishment.
3: I'm positioned here in New York and i have been having conversations with different people who are involved in New York democratic politics and uh, in national politics through their donations. And there is this sense of frustration. I mean, for many people they admire the policies of Mike Bloomberg But Mike Bloomberg's pitch is, you know, I'm a good manager. And I was speaking with someone who said basically he thinks that's going to win him votes. Is he insane? That wins the support of no one except the people who are in the business roundtable, of course, being the organization of more than 150 CEOs. There's this sense of frustration among establishment Democrats who make up a a big share of Democratic Party giving that there isn't a strong enough candidate to really coalesce behind and and push forward.
1: Do you think that establishment Democrats, especially those who are in business, will come off the sidelines if Sanders is the nominee? Do you think they rally behind him? Do you think they donate to him? Do you think they set up super PACs, or do they keep the money in the pockets?
3: I think it really varies by donor. There was one person I was speaking with who was absolutely not a Bernie person, but is all in for Bernie in the election if he becomes the nominee. And the reason for that is that they see his policies as poor. They're not the policies that they would choose. But Trump is operating on a different plane because of his attacks on the institution of the presidency. And he's on a different plane in in moral terms. They see uh, Sanders as not someone who's going to put children in cages.
0: One of the things that I find really interesting thinking about the collapse of centralized party authority over a few decades is how embarrassed, essentially, the party establishment is to try and exercise its authority. I mean, if you, if you look at the debate that took place in South Carolina on Tuesday night in the Democratic primary, you had two people on that stage in Bernie Sanders, who only joined the Democratic Party so he could run for its nomination. And Tom Steyer, who's never held office for the Democratic Party, yet there they are on stage running as Democratic primary candidates. The party could easily write rules saying that's not okay. You know, you can only be on that stage if you're a recent or current holder of office for the Democratic Party, and you have to have been a member of the party for the past five years or something. That would instantly kind of exclude some of the insurgent candidates. But there's a sense of kind of awkwardness about that, that You know, it's sort of undemocratic for the party to behave in such a way. And therefore, and there's a Lexington column in this week's Economist squarely on this, which is really good. I'd urge people to go and read it. Therefore, both parties have really made their parties wide open for insurgent candidates who can come from the outside, as Donald Trump did in 2016, as Bernie Sanders is doing in 2020, and capture the nomination. It's a very odd situation.
1: It is. And I think the only way you get over it is for one of those insurgents to lose. I think had Trump lost in 2016 you would have found the party taking the autopsy that said they need to sort of become more open to non-white voters much more seriously. I think if Sanders loses in 2020, you will see the party become much more serious about trying to prevent those insurgent candidacies again. The problem is Trump won and has sort of turned the Republican Party into a very Trumpist party. If Sanders wins, I don't know what his effect will be on the the Democratic Party, but it will set the same – Precedent that the party is essentially a vehicle for individual candidates and their ambitions rather than having the organizational and intermediary function
0: that it's always had. All right, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about what's causing this phenomenon of the disintegration of party authority and how it's playing out elsewhere. A lot of what we've been talking about here seems to be bigger than just the Democratic Party. Established parties in democracies all over the world have faced challenges from insurgents in recent election cycles. For a European perspective, I've been talking to Duncan Robinson, who's The Economist's Brussels bureau chief and our Charlemagne columnist.
4: Across Europe, established parties have... Not not quite collapsed, but being challenged very heavily, and so they've been challenged in two ways. In countries where they've got uh, relatively proportional representation systems. They've been challenged by new parties or fringe parties, which have become much more popular. So in the case of Germany, you've had parties like the Green Party have really come to the fore and started doing very well. And then you've had new parties such as Alternative for Deutschland have, have really come to the fore as well and started scooping up votes on the other other side of the political spectrum. And that's been repeating itself across the entire continent. You have a similar but slightly different scenario in places where you've got two-party systems such as the UK. So in the UK the challenge hasn't been External. It hasn't been new parties rising up. It's been internal. So insurgents have come in, and in the case of la- the Labour Party, the the left wing opposition, they took over and they elected this sort of left wing populist called Jeremy Corbyn. And in the case of the Conservative Party, a, a fringe project which was leaving the EU has become government policy and even the sort of raison d'etre of the entire party.
0: So in multi-party systems, you get a creation of a new party which challenges the established one. Tell us a bit more about other two-party systems because obviously that's the most relevant comparison with America which also has a two-party system. Tell us a bit more about Britain.
4: In the case of Britain, you had... A few years ago, you had the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, who became a surprise leader of the Labour Party when they changed the rules for how leaders were elected. So it used to be uh, not quite a stitch up, but a relatively controlled process where MPs would have a say, the unions would have a say, and then the members would have a say themselves. They threw away that system a few years ago, and now it's one member, one vote which means that MPs and party wallers have far less control over the system. And the result of that was you had Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the opposition for nearly five years.
0: Duncan, in purely electoral terms, Jeremy Corbyn was a flop in Britain. What are the lessons of that for Bernie Sanders and for the Democratic Party, do you think?
4: The main lesson from my point of view would be that Jeremy Corbyn tried to build a sort of new alliance of voters. It was younger, it was very metropolitan, it was very ethnically diverse, but he forgot about the party's core votes, which was this traditionally sort of white working class uh, voters who tended to live in the north, an area of Britain that's slightly poorer than the southeast. But you can't build an alliance by by bringing on new voters while simultaneously pushing voters off the other side, if that makes sense. So you do have to have that careful balancing act, which Corbyn failed to do.
0: Duncan, we're seeing what seems to be a connected phenomenon on both sides of the Atlantic. In multi-party systems in Western Europe, you've got these insurgent parties challenging the established dominant parties that ruled Western Europe for most of the post-war era. In two-party systems, like Britain and America, you have insurgents sort of coming in to take over political parties. It seems like too much of a coincidence that this is just happening at the same time and there's no connection. Do you have a, a sort of grand theory that explains what's going on?
4: I think historians will find this area of history relatively easy to explain. It seems like madness when you're in the middle of it. But if if you sort of put yourself 50 years hence, you you look at what were the big issues in the the sort of 2010s. And it started off with a massive financial crisis. And while that was happening, you also had a huge technology revolution. And those two factors, this sort of Gutenberg moment mixed in with the 1929 style crash combined together, then that's always going to have some huge political consequences. And that's what we're living through.
0: Charlotte, you're based in the US, but you know British politics pretty well as well. What do you make of those electability arguments that Jeremy Corbyn made and the parallels with Bernie Sanders?
3: It's funny. Whenever I talk to an English person, they ask me, uh, do you think Sanders voters are thinking about Jeremy Corbyn? And the answer to that is, Sanders voters don't know who Jeremy Corbyn is. I mean, very few Americans. Yeah, exactly. No one knows who Jeremy Corbyn is. I barely know who Jeremy Corbyn is. Nevertheless, the example of Jeremy Corbyn is informative. There are two arguments that are on either side of, of the Sanders question. The dream Bernie Sanders argument is that, and one that one of his supporters, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez makes, is that he is going to bring all these people to the polls. He's going to expand the electorate in ways that both help defeat Donald Trump and bring a wave of democratic candidates into office in Congress. The nightmare scenario is that actually he doesn't expand the electorate at all and that instead what he does is he makes vulnerable Democrats who are in moderate districts or who are many of those who were able to win in 2018 and thereby switch Control of the House from Republicans to Democrats, that he's going to make it much harder for those people to retain office. And the evidence, at least to date, suggests that it's probably more likely at least for the down-ballot races, that he'll have the nightmarish effect rather than the dream effect. So if you look at the numbers out of Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, there's no evidence that he has brought expansion of the electorate. In New Hampshire, for instance, the turnout in districts that he won was less than the turnout in the townships that Pete Buttigieg won. So that doesn't mean that Pete Buttigieg has a more impassioned base than Sanders does. Obviously, Buttigieg is trailing Sanders. But the argument for Bernie, which is that he's going to really unleash this wave of support, not just from existing Democratic voters but new ones, has not yet been borne out, at least in the states we've seen so far.
0: The paper I read this week, which I think Elliot Morris, who's one of our data journalists at The Economist, sent my way, suggested that because Bernie Sanders will tend to put off swing voters – he has to make up for that by increasing the turnout of voters under the age of 35 by a lot. He needs an 11 percentage point increase. In votes from that segment of society. And to put that in some kind of context, that would be bigger than the bump of African-American voters that Barack Obama got in 2008, the bigger turnout bump because a lot of African-American voters who hadn't bothered to vote before did vote in 2008. That would be, let's say, hard for Senator Sanders to accomplish. Not impossible, but really, really difficult if you look at historical data.
1: Yeah, that seems extraordinarily unlikely to me. His strategy seems to be built on pushing away reliable voters in favor of unreliable ones, that seems risky. Fassman,
0: you covered the 2018 midterms for us. And there, the story seemed to be, at least, one of Democratic candidates in suburbs, in districts that were held by Republicans, running against Donald Trump, yes, but mainly running on quite pragmatic issues. Is there some way back for the moderates and for the centrists, do you think? Or does this look like a kind of one-way ratchet to you?
1: I think that's a great question. And you're absolutely right that in 2018, Democrats won. They won a majority in the House because of conservative and moderate Democrats talking about kitchen table issues in districts that Donald Trump won. And Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket imperils that majority. At the same time, Hillary Clinton was seen as much more extreme than Donald Trump was. And I think that speaks to the fact that she sort of was seen as representing her party entirely, whereas Donald Trump was seen as bucking his. And so people thought he was sort of more independent. People thought he was less extreme. As to how moderates fight back, I think moderates have to gain some sort of foothold in the battle for ideas. They have to be able to tell a story well to match the story that Bernie Sanders is telling. They can't just say don't vote for this guy, vote for me because not this guy. That doesn't work. Hillary Clinton tried that in 2016.
0: It didn't work. It's not working now against Bernie Sanders. Just to footnote what you said about the electorate perceiving Hillary Clinton as more extreme than Donald Trump in 2016, that's if you ask people to place themselves on a kind of left-right ideological scale. On average, they placed Donald Trump closer to where they were in 2016 than they did Hillary Clinton.
3: Of all the many debates that we've had in this Democratic primary season, I think one of the most powerful moments came when Elizabeth Warren said— I don't know why anyone would go to the trouble of running for president only to have small ideas and this was a retort to moderates. And I think that really is part of the challenge with moderates that they'll say vote for me because I can beat Donald Trump or vote for me because these ideas are impractical. It's just not particularly exciting. The other thing is on the electability point. Biden's argument has always been I am the one who can best beat Donald Trump. And that may or may not be true, but just intuitively, when you look at the polls and Biden continues to lose, it doesn't really help him if one of the main arguments for choosing him is that voters like him and then actually turns out they kind of don't.
0: I'm going to put both of you on the spot here. We're talking just a couple of days before Super Tuesday. When we're on the next podcast, I expect we'll spend a few minutes digesting the results. Do you think Bernie Sanders will be unstoppable after Super Tuesday or do you think there's still a chance that one of the moderate candidates might be able to catch him?
3: I think that it would have to require politicians to do what they are not naturally suited to do, which is acknowledge that their vanity needs to be set aside and they need to act quickly to throw all their weight behind one moderate. And so let's say that Bloomberg doesn't perform well in Super Tuesday, for instance. He needs to immediately take all of his cash, pour it behind someone else. You know, Steyer, I don't really know what his end goal is at this point as he continues to stay in. He's pulling behind Bloomberg. Bloomberg has more money. So in the billionaire v. billionaire contest, he's losing. You know, Steyer should drop out. Klobuchar, I think, has had an impressive performance in different debates. But the run that she's had to date suggests that she's not going to be the person who's the Democratic nominee. So there's evidence already of people, frankly, who should drop out. And then after Tuesday, that evidence will be more compelling. And so it's really a question of acting very quickly to put both resources and their own political bases behind whichever moderate is most successful.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think if the field stays fractured, he's uncatchable. He may be uncatchable anyway if he wins by enough in California and pulls out a win in Texas. I mean, that's a lot of delegates. At that point, the field will inevitably win after Super Tuesday, but he will have already accumulated a massive delegate lead, and whoever it is who is emerges as the, as the moderate from the field will be playing catch-up and really
0: has to run the table in the rest of the states, which is going to be tough. Okay. Well, we'll see how it pans out next time. Before you go, it's time for the quiz, your favorite part. Among the archived Economist articles written about George McGovern, there's a piece on his victory in the Wisconsin primary in 1972. And alongside that story is a piece about the biggest grossing movie of 1972. Now, I'm going to test. Were you paying attention earlier? What was that film? The Godfather. Didn't you say that? I did. That's the point. I'm testing whether you're listening, John Fassman, but you've passed. That's good. I had nothing from <laughs> Charlotte, but I assume that, you know. <laughs>
3: no, dead silence. I absolutely was not listening. <laughs> okay.
0: You're forgiven because there's a second bit to this quiz, Charlotte. Maybe you can redeem yourself in this part. The Economist article Unlikely. is about the real-life power of the mob the crime boss Joseph Crazy Joe Gallo had been murdered in Umberto's Clam House in Little Italy the week before. Mr. Gallo himself apparently thought the Godfather movie was too flashy. But real-life mob power did influence the production of The Godfather, The Economist wrote in that article. Which key word was excised from the script of The Godfather at the insistence of the Italian-American Civil Rights League?
3: I feel like this should be a multiple-choice question. I'm not going to pull out this word just from the ether.
0: This is not an SAT, Charlotte. It's, it's tougher than that. Was it an ethnic slur? It was not an ethnic slur. Do you both give in?
3: I'm still waiting. I feel like I, I deserve multiple choice.
0: Was it, was it mafia? Mafia is correct. That was one yes. word. Also, the phrase cosa nostra, our thing, which of yeah. what the Sicilians actually huh. call the mafia. So one and a half points to John Fassman this week. Two,
3: two full points. I'm absolutely zero. Charlotte,
0: you can redeem yourself after Super Tuesday. Well, that's all from us. There's plenty more to listen to in The Economist radio feed. On Economist Asks, our interview podcast this week, Anne McElvoy has been speaking to Janet Yellen, the former Fed chair, about her views on Donald Trump and the US economy.
3: One of the questions he asked me was how fast I think that the United States was capable of growing. And I think his view certainly was three, four, five percent was something we ought to be trying to achieve. I didn't really think that that was something that was feasible.
0: Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.